I'm joined today by Bill Wilder, Microsoft Windows Azure MVP, author of Cloud Architecture Patterns, and Principal Cloud Architect at Dev Partners. Welcome, Bill. Thank you, Brian. It's good to be here. Bill, I come from a pretty traditional .NET background. I develop my C Sharp. I deploy to local IISs. I'm using local SQL servers. If I wanted to move to an Azure platform, what do I need to do? That's a good question. That's a question that a lot of developers will have as they make the transition, of course. The... The first thing to realize is that much of what you do already is going to stay the same. A line of ASP.NET code in C-sharp is still, by and large, a line of ASP.NET C-sharp code that works on the cloud, too. So many, many things will be remain familiar. But there are some things you're going to have to think a little bit differently about. For example, in the cloud, in a public cloud platform like Windows Azure, the systems that you, the uh, servers that you deploy on are typically multi-tenant. It's not just your code running there, but it's some other customer's code running there. And it's running on commodity hardware, meaning that it's not junk hardware, but it isn't the highest end hardware. It's very high value hardware. Hmm. So they get a lot of bang for a lot of cost efficiency out of that. So they can pass, they, they, they're competing on cost. So it's very important that they have uh, highly cost-efficient hardware so that they can pass it on to us. Uh, subject to failure. Right, and that's the rub, right? It's subject, more subject to failure. It's not redundant, like there aren't RAID drives in it, mm. and there, uh, there aren't redundant power supplies. So if a server fails, uh, it will just fail. And the responsibility for dealing with that failure used to be on-prem, typically was in the hardware itself with redundant hardware, mm. hardware that just never failed. In the cloud... That's a challenge for your own application architecture. Mm. So, for those, for the for the reasons of you know being um, multi-tenant and the possibilities of failure, one of the biggest changes that developers and architects need to think about is how to deal with failure. Failure has always been theoretically possible on-prem. You can make you can query your SQL database. And in theory, you could get an error, but you never did or because no they're on the same LAN. What's that? Or no response at all. Oh, no response at all. But uh, by and large, when there was a failure like that, t- typically the, the system would just, no would, you know, something would go wrong, would reboot the server, and it would be happy again. And that would happen once every nine months, and no one knew why. In the cloud, that stuff is going to be much more common. So it, it, that's the first thing is that you really need to r- uh, amp up the amount of uh, retry uh, detection, uh, failure detection, failure recovery. And there are some really nice patterns that are popular for being able to do this. They're they're not terribly uh, difficult to implement, and they're very good services in the cloud for uh, dealing with them. As one one example, uh, which I, I call the Q-centric workflow pattern, where you could decouple two tiers of your architecture, and they're uh, communicating through a reliable queue. And it used to be that a reliable queue was kind of a hard deal to to build out, you need a lot of expertise to do that, but it's available with ease in the cloud because mm. there's an API that says, create me a reliable queue and I'm going to start using it. And Microsoft worries about all the management of that under the hood. So it's a very easy to access capability. So that makes it very uh, cost efficient to incorporate that into your application architecture. And that's in some way more reliable than the commodity hardware that's subject to failure. Yes, uh, the, the, the queue and other parts of Azure infrastructure itself that are services, not just compute instances, for example, 
not just a VM for you to run your code on, are, they have their own reliability measures already built in. So, for example, when you put a message on an Azure queue and you get a uh, response back that said it's in the queue, you don't have to worry about it. Okay. It is it's redundantly stored by Azure, and so even a- if Azure itself has a failure, it will say, you know, one of my three copies has is on a machine that just has failed. Let me start replicating again, so I have a so I go back to three copies. It's actively managing that. And that's something that'll be done without necessarily even informing you. That's right. You may not even know about mm. that, uh, but that you may actually get that you may not know about it. But you may actually sometimes will know about it. You might get an error back when you try and put it on the queue, and it's up to you to retry. Okay, so the queue may be unavailable. You'll attempt to retry. As long as you have code to manage that, it'll probably get there the next time or a subsequent time. Correct. I see. Yep. And the more complex your systems are, the more likely the unlikely event of a retry is needed will be needed. Because as your systems get larger, the, the small probabilities become real. And that, that'll happen in the cloud. So that's only one thing that you're going to mm-hmm. want to do differently when you're uh, th- thinking about the cloud. Uh, another kind of big difference is that so much of the cloud is automatable. Mm-hmm. And there's you've, you know this whole DevOps movement, this mindset that we're going to uh, be able to have developers do a little bit more of the work to automate as much of the management of our application as possible. So we don't have a, a, uh, a written script that says when we deploy, we do A, B, and C. Instead, we have a program that does A, B, and C. And there are many, many ways of, of doing that. Uh, the, the whole platform is manageable through a REST API. And layered on top of that are language SDKs. So for example, if you're a .NET developer, you can use C-sharp code to build some management tools. Mm-hmm. Or you can use PowerShell because there is a whole set of PowerShell commandlets that Microsoft ships that allow you to do things like deployments, creating virtual machines, uh, de- removing virtual machines, scaling in either direction, you know, increasing or decreasing scale. Uh, there are monitoring tools built in with APIs. You, you can access so much of the platform in an automated manner that that's kind of a different way of going about the management of your systems uh, in the cloud. Security is something that I've been to a few talks in Azure, and there's always questions about security. And typically the response is, there is none, which I presume is pretty much what you've... In the same way you have to deal with failure, you have to deal with security. Let's uh, lean into that a little bit. So that's a fair point, that just because you're in the cloud, that doesn't relieve you of the responsibility of writing code that's secure. A SQL injection attack that was possible when you were running on-prem is certainly going to work when you're in the cloud. There's no magic pixie dust that makes it more secure, uh, makes your application code itself more secure. I think people kind of are lulled into this bizarre sense of security. Well, Microsoft's hosting it. It must be secure. Yeah, well, again, your 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 application could have uh, bugs in it. But let's talk about what Microsoft does do for you. When you deploy into Windows Azure, you're, depending on a few details, but the, but typically your, your application would de- be deployed into an isolated network, a VLAN within the Azure network in one of their uh, eight production data centers with seven more on the way, uh, globally distributed. And so, the, so there's network isolation. 
they're doing uh, penetration monitoring to protect the platform itself. The uh, virtual machines that your code runs on are secure by default. So if you create a service, uh, say a cloud service is one of the deployment models or a virtual machine, your all the ports are closed by default. Mm. Maybe there's an RDP port open so you can go in, but HTTP port 80 is not open even by default. You have to go in and explicitly uh, open that if you want to host a web server or that in port 443 perhaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, so secure by default. They're doing a lot of things right. There's more to that story as well, but they're doing a lot of things right to make it harder for you to have um, applications that accidentally aren't secure other than your own uh, code bugs. And there's one more thing that um, it used to be when a few years ago when people would ask me about, well, is you know, what's this Azure thing and how do I know it's secure? Uh, the the proxy for that question has become which certifications does it have? Is it HIPAA certified? Mm-hmm. Is it PCI compliant? And those thing, kinds of things. And if you go to the Windows Azure Trust Center, which is on their support site under windowsazure.com, you can view a list of the uh, of the certifications and compliance certificates that the data centers have earned. You know, they've been audited and whatnot, whatever's needed for, say, PCI compliance, HIPAA compliance. Mm-hmm. So that is almost the more important question these days. Yes. If it's HIPAA compliant, I'm probably cool with that if that's, you know, if I'm doing a medical application, as an example. And I used to say that... Um, a few years ago, when somebody put something in the cloud, and if it was uh, it was uh, compromised somehow, mm-hmm. just hypothetically, people would say, "You know, what, what, what were you thinking? Why did you put it in the cloud where it's not safe?" And I think in the future, when you put something on prem or you host it yourself and it's compromised, people are going to say, "What's wrong with you? What were you thinking? Why didn't you put it in the cloud where?" You know, Microsoft and these other big data center providers have the top security brains mm-hmm. in the world. Working on locking this thing down, they they are not skimping on security, and they can afford and attract a lot more high-powered security talent than virtually any individual organization. On the on the point of back and forth in the history of computers, there's always been sort of big, powerful computers being shared by multiple users, down to small computers with power for an individual. I saw this going from Multix to Unix, then you had powerful desktops. In the mid-90s, I was working on Sunblades, which were dumb terminals. And then we've moved back now to powerful desktops. And again, we've moved towards now the cloud. Do you see us ever moving back from the distributed architecture of the cloud? I think we've uh, we've crossed over to a point where we're not going back. We have um, I'm holding up a, a phone, an iPhone, that is uh, probably more compute power than was needed to put the first man on the moon, but yeah. um, but still fairly limited when you consider the functionality you get on a phone. Hmm. If you're using something like Siri, if I understand it correctly, it, that's actually going to the clouds, going to the servers in the sky and uh, figuring out what you said and figuring out how to respond and then sending that back. So we've, we've created a dependency on the rapidly growing uh, mobile segment on having cloud services to back them. Yeah, I, I think there's uh, there's no no turning back. Another reason that the cloud kind of model will stick around for a long time is that if, if you look at how much 
attention the big data center companies are putting into making the data centers really green, like Google and Microsoft, mm. and they have a lot of research going on in here. And they, they publish some really staggering numbers that tell you how efficient their data centers are. And uh, in a world that is increasingly uh, valuing green anything, um, that this is a, another feather in the cap of cloud computing, is that the same amount of computing can be done far uh, with far less impact to the environment if it's in the cloud. Now, even like the supercomputers now, they're measuring them on their greenness and not just their processing power. Uh, as a developer and as someone responsible for deployment of websites, you often have to deal with what's going to be the maximum load you're likely to get. And then you say, okay, well, I'm going to have three or four servers to deal with um, the incoming requests. In Azure, I understand that you can pretty much scale out as much as you want, and then as your traffic reduces, you can bring it back. And all this has a, a very positive impact on the cost of the service to you. Yeah, exactly right, Brian. The um, So if your architected, if your application architecture will support it, and that's that's actually a question. You yeah. might have an application that that doesn't scale very well. Mm-hmm. Some applications have historically been designed to work really well on one server, and if you need more capacity, you put more memory in that server or you bigger hard drive or whatnot. And going from one to two servers is actually hard. Mm-hmm. But let's assume that you've figured out how to do that effectively. Usually, if you go from one to two, you can go from two to three to four to five. And this ties back into the automation story and the um, uh, the the exercise that you would typically go through in the pre-cloud world to do your uh, planning for resources, how many servers you need, and you have to figure that all out in advance. You do a model, and you say, okay, we're going to need nine servers, and you go through procurement, and you, you know, seven months later, you have them ready to be installed and so forth. In the cloud, you still need to go through the same process, but the risks are so much lower. You can put your thumb to the wind and say, well, we're going to need between five and 12 servers, depending on how successful this project is, you know, how successful the market adopts it or whatnot. And you don't have to spend any money on it, of course. So uh, what you can do in the cloud is as your business grows, you add resources to accommodate the growth. So if you go from a, a, a thousand users to 10,000 users, you pay more for the 10,000 user uh, resources. Now, the, the auto-scaling, auto-scaling is another kind of thing that the cloud makes fairly straightforward in a lot of scenarios, where you can set up some rules in Azure that will cause your the, the number of virtual machines that you have running to increase if the if it if the machine is if the system is straining to keep up with use you can have it increase and if it's got a lot of excess capacity you can have it uh, release resources and this of course keeps your cost aligned with your actual needs so f- the the exact amount of money spent for the exact amount of uh, of usage you're getting hmm. so that makes you maximally you know you have the potential to make you maximally cost efficient which is big. And, and a, a side effect of that, too, is you can, if you have a line of business application in your company and nobody uses it on the weekends, scale it way, way down to mm-hmm. one little tiny server or turn it off even over the weekend. You can you can manage that, too. 
Think of all the money you can save if when people weren't in the office and that they didn't need these apps, they were just turned off and the meter wasn't running. And is that something that Azure does for you or you have to do to various API calls? It depends on what you're talking about. So a, uh, so a, a cloud service or a website running, you can set up some triggers without writing any code. Mm-hmm. You can do this in the Azure portal where if some signal uh, crosses a threshold, some action is taken. So, for example, as a signal might be CPU usage or the length of a queue, if you're using the kind of pattern I mentioned earlier where you decouple tiers with a queue in the middle. And based on if the queue length is a certain amount, if it's the queue length is growing, you might want to add capacity. If it's shrinking uh, below some threshold, you might want to remove capacity. So that's one thing you can definitely do in the portal. If you want to do something like turn off entirely, like undeploy an application for the weekend, mm-hmm. uh, you could write a script to do that, say a PowerShell script, and you could tie that to a scheduled event within Azure itself. There's a scheduling, a task scheduler in Azure, mm. and you could set it up so that that would take down the deployment on Friday evening and redeploy it at 5 a.m. Monday morning so it's there waiting for your users when they show up at the office. So that's something that might be very useful in the likes of a testing environment even, where you have 9 to 5 testing outside of hours, no one's doing anything. Cut your costs. Absolutely. That's a whole other vein of use of the cloud. So most of the stuff we've been talking about, has the discussion is really focused around production. Mm. But the cloud is also a fantastic resource for having many, many environments mm. because we can each have our own environment. We can spin it up on demand. When we don't need it, we put it away. And so, you can duplicate easily, I presume, as well. So you've got almost identical dev, staging, productions. Yes, and you can automate that duplication mm. very nicely. So if you're using TFS as your source control and you've made some changes to your development code, you've submitted, checked it into TFS, can TFS be set up in such a way as to push that code to your Azure, run unit tests, and report back? Yeah, it can. Um, it's actually, I think the ordering is a little different. Okay. So you put it into, you check in, you can, so you can set up TFS or GitHub for that matter mm-hmm. to do things uh, like automatically run tests after a check-in and then deploy it to Azure if it passes the tests. Okay. And that can be automated as very easily. Yeah, you go into, yes, you can. You set up basically a trigger that, mm-hmm. that kicks on, kicks in at the end of the, um, the build test process on visualstudio.com mm-hmm. or maybe, I don't, I'm less familiar with the on-prem, uh, TFS these days. I've been using the, uh, the one in the cloud. But you can definitely do it with the one in the cloud. You can even schedule it. So you can have maybe a separate schedule that says every night at 3 a.m., build it and test it and then publish it to this, say, test environment so that the next day when the test team shows up, that's mm-hmm. the one that they test against. So it's pretty much a continuous integration environment with using Azure. Continuous integration with continuous deployment mm-hmm. to, uh, on top. Absolutely. Mm. To turn a little bit, a lot of companies look at Microsoft as being a very expensive platform to develop on, the cost of SQL Server and the like. But with Azure, I get the impression that the costs are kept under control because you're paying for the time that you use. If you're not a heavy user, you obviously use less cycles and all the li- are, and are all licensing fees included in your monthly subscriptions? They can be. The uh, I, I believe there's also a model where if you already have licenses, then you can 
you can apply those to your Azure resources. So that would be typically maybe a company with an enterprise agreement. Uh, but that aside, you know, if you don't have any licenses, the, you're absolutely right that the licensing costs are baked into the rental charges mm. that you get from the platform. So if you run, say, a SQL server for 47 minutes, you get charged for exactly 47 minutes of resource, you know, with the license baked into that. Mm. Over the last four years, this is about the four-year anniversary of Azure going into production, is that correct? That's right. What have you seen as the major changes in this time? Oh, boy. Um, when Azure started out, so it was announced at the Microsoft's Professional Developer Conference in 2008 in, it was October, November, I think. And then it went live um, a year and a quarter later or so. And when it was first announced, it was the .NET services platform. It was initially conceived of as a Microsoft.NET uh, service delivery platform. Mm. And it's evolved immensely since the thinking has evolved a lot. So it's not just .NET. It's .NET and a bevy of open source technologies like Python, Node.js, PHP, uh, there's Ruby SDK, and it's not even just Windows anymore. Mm. Um, here's one of the other big changes. When it first came out, there was just one programming model, which is called Cloud Services. And that was a stateless VM, meaning that if you saved to the hard drive, and then one of these failures that we talked about that can happen a small percentage of the time, but it does happen, where a hard drive fails or machine fails, that data was gone. It wasn't backed by anything. That was That's what stateless... It's still a good model for certain kinds of applications, but as the only model, it was tedious to do things like run your own database because mm. most companies like their data to stick around when there's a hardware failure. So that's one of the huge changes where they've gone from just this cloud services model, which is still very powerful, to adding two other significant programming models, which are uh, virtual machines, mm -hmm. which is the infrastructure as a service model that has um, Amazon has had so much success with, and Windows Azure websites, which is a platform as a service, which makes it much easier to deploy an ASP.NET app. It's very much the same app. You put it on, it's just running on Azure or PHP, or Python, or uh, Node.js. So the Node.js runtime, for example, is already on the uh, Windows Azure websites. Mm. Python 2.7 something is running on there as well. So those are two big changes. They have two PaaS stacks now, cloud services and websites, and, uh, and uh, infrastructure as a service stack. Other things that have changed, too, are they've come up with second-generation services for authentication, so originally we had something called the Access Control Service, and Access Control Service is not getting any attention these days. All the energy is focused on something that's, um, I'm going to say, maybe a year and a half old, which is uh, Windows Azure Active Directory. So it's a projection of the very popular Active Directory technology that's running in lots of corporations around the planet into the cloud. And it's not just a port of that. It's kind of a rethinking of it. And that is... Um, a really nifty set of uh, technologies. It can integrate with your on-prem, uh, so it's a lot more enterprisey in that sense. This is, you know, this is as co as opposed to the original ACS. Mm -hmm. This is a um, a much more enterprise-friendly uh, model. 
Um, some other differences are back then, everything was, if you looked at the pricing, everything looked like it was fractions of a penny or, mm. you know, everything was ridiculously cheap, including uh, SQL Azure at the time, which was fairly cheap and still at the entry level is, uh, is very uh, inexpensive. But um, the, the change today is that there are a lot of premium features that are available. For example, there is a SQL, they, they've rebranded SQL Azure to Windows Azure SQL Database. So there's a SQL Database premium that um, maybe costs an extra $20 or $30 a day. I don't remember the pricing off the top of my head. But that's as opposed to, you could, you could add that pricing to a database that if you didn't have that premium quality, premium features would cost $20 a month. You know, it's, that's a premium feature, premium price. But they're good value. Uh, if you look at the, what they get you, like if you, if, if using the, um, more premium features of SQL database to have maybe a redundant set of SQL servers that you, that, or SQL, uh, services that, that you didn't have to hire a DBA to manage, uh, the value uh, is probably still there. Expensive, but less expensive than a DBA. And the, the premium features of SQL database include things like reserve capacity. So even though it's a multi-tenant system, they reserve capacity that's just for you. And with the older model, you might actually, you would definitely get many more retries because the, uh, what's the so-called noisy neighbor problem. If my queries are suddenly hogging all the resources in the database while you're trying to, uh, Access the database or save some data, you, the database can't keep up with us all. So it rejects some of the calls. In the premium model of SQL Server, of SQL Azure rather, uh, it will, that won't happen because it's reserved capacity for Brian and it won't let me use your capacity even if you're not using it. So do you see Microsoft continuing to add services to the Azure platform? Because about a year ago I saw a presentation by John Garland where he showed the mobile services, and I was very, very impressed. Yes, absolutely. They're working very hard on lots of new services. For you mentioned mobile services, that that's a very popular one. There are uh, there's a Hadoop stack running in Azure. So if you want to apply uh, MapReduce style analysis on your data, you can use what's called HD Insight, which is Microsoft's cloud implementation of uh, Hadoop. There are, they have a caching service now that's uh, very useful. What else? Um, the uh, media services, if you want to do uh, video transcoding and delivery through Azure, there are services for that. BizTalk services. Hmm. They, and a bunch of other stuff um, related to the mobile. They have the notification hub to make it easy for you to send notifications out to different kinds of devices, kind of complements the um, the mobile services. So if you want to send a notification to your iPhone, you don't really have to know how to do that so much. Uh, the the notification hub knows how to do that, knows how to talk to an Android and so forth. There are DNS services like Traffic Manager. They'll do global uh, geo-based load balancing and failover across sites. All the stuff built in. The, I, one thing I didn't mention that's actually pretty uh, important is the uh, virtual networking capabilities that they have too. You can attach your on-prem network to a network in the cloud and you can attach networks in the cloud to each other you know you can have a, a complex network in the cloud 
Um, and you can either do that on-prem from a point-to-site thing, as it's called, mm-hmm. like from your laptop, you can connect and have a secure connection there, or you can do a, a more persistent one for the whole team with a site-to-site, as it's called, where you could uh, have Azure coming in through a Juniper router, for example, mm-hmm. all you know, all official. So the Azure machines seem like they're just an extension of your mm-hmm. uh, local LAN. So they're definitely... No doubt. Those are a bunch of examples. Uh, they're definitely uh, forward-looking and mm-hmm. adding more and more features to make this uh, the most attractive cloud they can possibly make it. And I, I suppose with the move of the head of the Azure group, now the CEO, the future looks good for Azure. Yeah, that's an interesting one. So you're talking about Satya Nadella, who until a couple of days ago, or well, as of the recording time, was the head of the cloud platform. And now he's the CEO. Mm. So Microsoft choosing a somebody who's uh, so uh, so into the cloud, such a you know deep steeped in the cloud over the years as their new CEO, I, I I can't do anything but bode well for the future of Microsoft's cloud positioning. And it looks like Scott Guthrie has taken over now as head of the cloud group. I presume things look great. I've been paying a lot of attention to Azure since the 2008 uh, PDC when it was announced. And Scott Guthrie became involved with Azure, I'm going to guess, two years ago. And he's really had a, an incredibly positive impact. He, he's, he's such a, he's a really strong leader for that organization. And the, the cadence of their deliveries, the richness of the features, the robustness of the platform. Uh, obviously, the whole team deserves an immense amount of credit. But I think Scott is the focal point there, making a lot of stuff happen. So I'm very excited to see him having more scope, a larger scope within Microsoft. What brought you to Azure in the first place? I was at the PDC conference in 2008 when the then architect, chief architect of Microsoft, a guy named uh, Ray Ozzie, unveiled it on stage. And he said, this is the next thing that Microsoft is attacking. Uh, we're going in the cloud and we have this platform. And I got kind of excited about it. I've, in my career, I've occasionally been smart enough to, uh, to attach myself to some forward-looking technology. And I started to program in Azure at that PDC. They had some labs. And I just wanted to learn more about it. I signed up for the preview programs. And I started um, looking around for the user group meetings on Azure. Mm. And, of course, nobody heard of Azure, so there weren't any user group meetings. So I started one. I started Boston Azure, which is uh, meets over here in Cambridge uh, usually once a month. And we were the first Azure group uh, that I know of. And I did that for a while. And then um, a couple of years ago, I left my corporate job to do Azure consulting full-time because it just seemed like more fun than any other technical pursuit I could think of. Hmm. And how's the meetup group going for you? Oh, it's going great. Meet a lot of very interesting people. And um, we have, I don't know, between five and 600 uh, people who subscribe to our posts, and we usually get a, a decent turnout. We have a... Uh, we're participating in the Global Windows Azure Bootcamp, which is March 29th of next month, Saturday, March 29th. If you go to bostonazure.org, you can uh, you can sign up for us. Uh, we're uh, we still have room for more people. Can you tell us a little bit about what that event is? Yeah, it's an all-day, worldwide 
coordinated uh, events. So it's got a couple of purposes. The, it, the main purpose is you just kind of show up and you learn about Windows Azure. So you come with a laptop, we'll tell you what to install on it ahead of time, and we'll have a sequence of lecture, lab, lecture, lab, lecture, lab, where somebody like myself or uh, a number of other uh, folks who help um, uh, uh, run these events, uh, local um, Azure uh, 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 experts in the community, like Jim O'Neill, uh, mm-hmm. for example, um, will will help um, to um, to give some of the talks and help organize some of the labs. So you'll go there and you'll actually get a bunch of information thrown at you, and then you'll get some hands-on experience working with Azure. But the um, the global tie-in is that uh, we're also going to do a, one of the labs will be for diabetes research, where they have some uh, compute jobs that are very resource intensive. So we're going to combine the efforts of about 100 sites around the world, everybody working in parallel to help out this uh, diabetes research effort using ridiculous amounts of uh, uh, Azure computation uh, uh, on that same day. So some um, so some other Windows Azure MVPs that are, are organized this event. Um, I'm just a participant. But uh, so is this something that's going to be coded on the day, or you've already got your code in place? Um, the code is in place, and we all just share the. Um, uh, I don't. I haven't seen the, so the uh, Mike and Michael and uh, Martin and uh, Magnus are putting together the coding aspect mm-hmm. that they're going to share with us. I, I haven't seen the final one yet. But mostly it's something that would require a small amount of work, but um, would, you know, we want to be able to do it in a lab environment easily with a, somebody who's probably new to Azure. So, um, so we're not coding up diabetes research, you know, business logic. We're more deploying a, a ready to go package. In your role as a consultant, how, how do you see the uptake of Azure versus the likes of Amazon Web Services? If you asked me that question uh, a couple of years ago, it would have been that um, the the primary consumers of Azure at that time were very forward-looking companies who were willing to uh, re-architect possibly, or at least mess with the architecture of their existing applications to make them cloud-ready and and to really take advantage of the cloud. Because the proposition was a little different back then. We only had cloud services which were optimized for broad scale. They're superb if you have uh, massive scaling needs and high reliability, super high reliability, but most apps are not like that. Hmm. So, so bringing it back up today, I have, there's a much more encouraging answer to that question where uh, with the introduction of Windows Azure websites and Windows Azure uh, virtual machines, the uptake in Azure has been out of control. I, I heard a stat that they were signing up something like a thousand new customers a day to the platform, um, and do that long enough, that starts to be real numbers. So, so it's very encouraging. I, don't, I, can't, I have no numbers to compare Amazon with Azure, but um, my, I'm not having any finding, I'm not having any trouble uh, finding people interested in Azure. Let me put it that way. One final question, if I may. I asked you to pick a few books, and I'm going to post the names on the website, the books that influenced you in your career. But one that uh, that stuck out was called Getting to Yes, Negotiating Agreement Without Giving In. Is that something that's influenced you throughout your career or more as your role as a consultant? 
I read that book a long time ago, and the um, the I should probably reread it. It was a, quite a good book. It's a it's a book about how you think about a negotiation, and it has principles in it like try and understand the other the the other parties. Um, uh, try to look back at the other parties' positions to their real interests and um, and some other tactics are in there. But things like that uh, have helped me in my development career before I was a consultant. For example, when the VP of development comes to a junior or mid-level engineer and says, well, we need all these features in by six months from now, and then the death march begins, um, wouldn't it be nice if somebody had the skills to say, well, okay, we could do that, but I know your real goal is, uh, you know, or you, your longer-term goals don't involve burning out the development team and having half of them quit midway through, and the quality of the application in six months is likely to be very low, and I know that's not in your interest either. And, you know, going through a process of really thinking about how to defend the development team uh, in the best interest of everybody... Um, so I found those skills were kind of useful then. I used to be a development manager at a large company. And certainly they're useful as a uh, consultant. Bill Wilder, thank you very much. Thank you, Brian. A uh, real pleasure. Do it, do it.
got away, I got away, I got away.